These readings are Numbers 21, 4 through 9, and John 3, 14 through 21. They can be found on pages 144 and 979 of the Bibles next to your seats, as well as on the screen. This is God's word. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom, but the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look up at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole. Then, when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. John three fourteen through 21 Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's only one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because of their deeds were evil. All those who do evil hate the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But those who live by the truth come into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. The word of the Lord. Thank you, God. I invite you to pray with me. Dear God, we come to you in this time from all different kinds of stories, all different places. The beautiful sunshine comes in and spring feels like it is here in spades. And yet, um, in our lives, it may feel more like winter or fall. Um, We might have hurts and doubts and pains and struggles um, that others here won't know about anytime soon. And yet, they define our very existence this morning. Others of us come with other kinds of brokenness. We might be in a positive, good phase now, but the truth is, all of us sit here more broken than we care to admit to each other more of a mess than we want other people to know. And your grace is what we run into every week and what we try to wrap our minds around each week. The reality that even though we're more broken than we care to admit, through Jesus we are more loved and accepted than we ever imagined, than we could ever dream. And we ask that this kind of grace would expand our mind and our lives and bring transformation where we need it most, even this morning as we consider your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Um, In the seminary years, um, I worked with a building company. I worked for a building company and with builders, but I was not a builder. I was not a carpenter. A lot of times, if you were watching, you you could see it. 
you see the actions, you would say a, a, a true carpenter, a true builder wouldn't do that. Um, we would work in the winter. The crew I worked for worked through the winter, even outdoors, which was rare. Most of them would take a certain amount of time off in the winter from that kind of work. But they, this group was tough, and they would just plow through, and so I had to wear all these layers of clothes. And um, one of the times when I, I did a sort of a non-builder-type flub, I had a, a nail gun up high um, shooting these massive spikes into two-by-fours, and the nail gun kind of shifted and went back towards me as I pulled the trigger, and the nail came down. And I was saved um, by my layers um, because, how do I say this? The nail was directed at a place that was truly terrifying. <laughs> and, um, but I had like three layers going on there, and it was all good. I worked with builders, but I was not a builder. Um, we live in an age when it seems like you can dabble in something and there's this impression that just by dabbling you have become that thing, you know? A, a basketball player can become the mayor. A movie star can become governor and we've also seen that a Saturday Night Live comic writer can become the junior senator from Minnesota. Does dabbling mean that you've become the thing, or is there something yet to be desired? I think a lot of the common thinking about your identity and about who you are is, you know, if you have a sudden aha moment, an aha discovery, you can kind of go into a new phase of who you are just by sort of declaring, this is me. <clears throat> and yet, really, truth is, if you look at yourself, you're still kind of dabbling. You're not, you're not really that thing yet. And that's why the story of Nicodemus is so delightful, because Nicodemus, we learn before the part that we read, um, he's introduced this way. Now, there was a Pharisee, that's actually who he is. There was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night. What does that say? He, came, he didn't come in the daylight. He didn't come when people might see him. He came to Jesus at night. And that's, that's a crucial fact. I have to go back and grab that little tidbit because that, makes, that helps understand all of what Jesus says in this powerful interaction with Nicodemus. Because Nicodemus is still on the fence. He's interested. And a lot of what Jesus is saying is to try to move him towards not just interest, but invested. He's uh, sort of a fan. His attention has been grabbed by some of Jesus' miracles. He's an admirer, but he's not a follower. He's starting to know a little bit about the story of Jesus, but the story of Jesus is not yet his story. And that's exactly what Jesus is trying to do with Nicodemus and with all of us. And so we get to listen in and into how Jesus is talking to Nicodemus in a way that, that really... Hundreds of people in Jesus' day and thousands and millions since the day of Jesus have had to deal with Jesus to try to pull out of, in some way, you're on the fence. In some way, you're, in, you're maybe coming out of the dark, but you're not yet in the light. You're in a gray area. You're trying to figure things out. Or maybe you could, be, you could say, I'm a Christian. I've been doing this thing. I've been you know, claiming myself as one of these folks all along, and yet there's still parts of your life that you say, yeah, I'm still kind of on the fence. I'm still figuring it out, or it hasn't been fleshed out fully. For me, so we listen into Jesus talk about uh, three things with Nicodemus: the severity of the problem, 
the grand scale of God's solution. And one last pesky detail. So those are the three things we want to look at today. First of all, the severity of the problem. This is, if you're going to kind of start to step into the light, if, you're going to, if, if Nicodemus is going to not just come to Jesus in the dark when no one will see him, but actually begin to transition into being an invested follower, Jesus thinks it's important to deal with the reality of the severity of the problem that, that causes the need for a big transition to happen when you connect with Jesus. Um, <clears throat> Thinking about what is our problem and the severity of our problem, Jesus says, when he references, I love the way these two scripture texts from the lectionary, from the church's kind of Bible calendar, put us right in there like we get this absolutely strange story from the Old Testament that's bringing this delightful laughter as we, you know, then God brought snakes, you know, just, whoa, whoa. And then, and then we, we see Jesus reference that story. And, and if you didn't know the story, you're just kind of, where is that coming from? Lifting up a bronze snake? But what we see is clearly what this is saying. Don't miss the fact that as the snake is being lifted up for people to be, to have this, you know, to get well, to be saved, you have to acknowledge the fact that they were in trouble, that they were contaminated, that there was venom. And now this is the cure for something that's really bad. This week there were articles about, um, the, I think it's the third anniversary of the earthquake and the tsunami and then the Fukushima power plant disaster. And one writer described um, the nuclear contamination this way, uh, saying that it's basically a contamination that you can't see, that you can't smell, that you can't touch, that you can't feel. And it, you just kind of say, wow, yeah. In many ways, we live our lives and we like to avoid the reality and, and that there's a deadly contamination at work. And that's what Jesus, with the story of the, referencing the story of the venomous snakes, that's one of the things he's referencing. <clears throat> when Jesus compares himself to the bronze snake, he's also saying we're sicker than we realize. Although we could live in denial, although, you know, if, if we do, though, apparently, we're in big trouble. Our, our outlook is dire. Um, I find this is often a big barrier for spiritual growth, quite frankly, is grappling with the severity of the problem, not going deep enough on how bad we are, on, on how, how no one escapes the venom of sin as it pollutes every aspect of our life. And in some ways... Um, you, you know, you might be sitting here and you might, it might still be kind of a barrier to growth because life circumstances have allowed you to imagine possibly that, you know, I'm not really that bad off. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, basically the diagnosis is in, your condition is terminal. No one escapes the venom of sin contaminating their life, even if you choose to ignore it, pretend it's not there. And, you know, okay, so why do we got to start on such a, a downer note? Because we're going to transition to saying, let's look at the grand solution that Jesus brings. That really is where his emphasis lies in this story. But quite frankly, I mean, you just have to grasp how if you don't deal with the severity of the problem, the solution just seems kind of lightweight. And oh, ho-hum, oh, isn't that nice? But if, you've, you know, if you're at that point where you say, yes, terminal, and then cured. 
dealt with the first, then the second seems, you know, it gives its proper, proper weight. So the scale of God's solution. In Jesus, there's this mind-boggling, life-altering solution. One commentator, as he looks at this passage, which includes John 3.16, which is that, you know, I grew up with seeing a baseball game with someone behind the catcher with a big white sign that says John, or maybe hot pink sign that says John 3.16. And so you go like, well, what is that? Well, if, if you spent some time in church, maybe you had to memorize the verse, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Not only today have we learned that that is fitting within some very kind of interesting and bizarre conversations, including a, referencing a bronze snake story that you maybe never knew the context of all this. But what I found this week was that one commentator who's often quoted about this verse basically says this, as he breaks apart John 3.16 into its, all of its parts, such as the word God and the word so and love and the cosmos. As he breaks it all up, he says, this passage is about the greatest subject ever, the greatest extent ever, the greatest affection ever, the greatest object ever, the greatest gift ever, the greatest opportunity ever, the greatest commitment ever, the greatest rescue ever, and the greatest promise ever. The scale is huge. Jesus wants us to use our imagination. When, okay, so another part of this passage you might not have realized because we didn't read it is right before this, Jesus referenced something else that's kind of popular to talk about in our culture, at least in the Christian circles. Being born again. So that is just referenced in conversation to Nicodemus. And Nicodemus rightfully is obtuse and totally beside himself on what this, this means. What are you talking about? That's impossible, born again. And Jesus is not talking about a logical concept, a literal thing. He's talking about a spiritual reality and a transformation. He's, what he's trying to work on with Nicodemus and with all of us is expanding our imagination. It's often, I think, why Jesus speaks in parables. I think it's often why he seems so difficult to understand he wants you to imagine <clears throat> with the bronze snake. He wants you to enter into the reality. You have a terminal illness. There is venom spreading cell by cell through your body. How terrifying is that? And a cure comes just in time, and it works, and you're giving your life back. He wants you to just stop and enter in to some of these amazing realities Jesus talks about as he tries to expand our imagination. You know, when he says born again... You have to be born anew. The idea that your life is falling apart and you get a, an absolute new start to life. You actually get to start over right when things, right when you realize you're in a disastrous place. Born again. And it's very difficult for us to imagine, to expand our minds enough to imagine this. I love how uh, the writer C.S. Lewis portrays us in our difficulty of imagining things when he says, um, and I've probably quoted this before, like it, we're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. A lot of our problem is just imagination, just entering into letting our mind expand until we're caught by the vision of how extensive of a beautiful and grand solution God has actually brought to our actual lives. 
you look through the Bible, you see Jesus talking about the unexpected welcome of a, of a, a grown-up child returning home to the home where he should receive only hatred and rejection because of his disrespectful actions leaving home. And a party is thrown in his honor, lavish spending occurs, and he's back in and there's no trick, there's no little bait and switch where at the end, off with his head at the end of the party or something like that, which is what should have happened. Returning where you should be rejected and you're accepted with open arms and a lavish feast in your honor. That's you. That's me. That's what God's offering us through Jesus. Um, another one I love is this idea of you're walking through a field and you trip over something. This is a, a, a mini picture Jesus gives us of how great this thing is that comes in Jesus. As you trip over this thing in a field, you open it up, and it's a treasure beyond your wildest dreams. So your reaction is to cover it back up and go liquidate everything and buy the field. And you just have this delight because now you have this treasure that makes everything okay in your life. And I think what's hard to realize is that Jesus wants us to expand our thinking, expand our imagination, in order that, you know, we know that if, when you become a Christian, you're actually waking up to that kind of joy and delight, that kind of party, that kind of treasure new every day. That is something that is not just a, you know, you kind of believe in a doctrine at one point and then you try to be a really good person the rest of your life. That is something that kind of enters into your life and then you wake up to it afresh every morning. You wake up to it afresh every challenge, every struggle, every item of suffering that comes into your life, every fork in the road that you have no idea nor the strength to handle. And, you, and all of those things pale in comparison to what you already have in Jesus. The, um, the song that if you're doing our, our 2015 prayer guide, that book, the white book that we've had in the back a lot, this song was referenced this week. And I love this line. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. The song is, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, all the vain things that charm me most. Quite frankly, that's the idea of this incredible treasure, this being born again, this being cured from being a terminal illness. What you have in Jesus makes everything else just pair in comparison, makes everything else you might grab hold of and, and anchor your life in seem vain. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them because of what I have that's so amazing. So there's the severity of the problem. There's the grand scale and scope of what Jesus offers, God's solution. And then there's one last pesky detail. As you look at this passage, if you look at the John 3, verses 14 through 21, which is what we are looking at on the screen, <clears throat> the word that comes up over and over again is a word I haven't even mentioned yet or focused on, and that's believe. Believe. It's all over the place in this passage. The people who are a part of this big transition, the people who are a part of this, like, this new life, this cure, this treasure, are people who believe. Now, it's fascinating because the three, there's a lot of like, stuff you don't expect here. There's three images we're given. You're born again of God. Um, you look up at what's lifted up, you know, the bronze snake or Jesus. And then third, you know, come out of the darkness into the light. And all three of those kind of core images that Jesus is working with here 
all of them refuse to put the burden on you and the burden of the transformation on you. Born again. Is anybody here able to say they're responsible for their own birth? That they, you know, they can kind of be proud about how they handled being born and what they did to make that happen? No. And that's exactly how the idea of like being born again. It's like it's not something you create. Um, and then the other one, you know, this idea of a bronze snake being lifted up, it's like Jesus on the cross. The point is, if you're in that story, you look at, the, you look at what's lifted up, but Jesus is the one who carries the burden, who lifts the weight and goes up. And then coming out of the darkness into the light, you're not expected to be the light in that analogy, but you, you are kind of moving into it. But the burden of the light isn't on you. It's already there. All three of them refuse to place the burden on your shoulders. And quite frankly, then, what's left? What's left is that pesky word, believe, which means you have to trust, which means at some point you have to let go of something. And that's where it gets kind of pesky, isn't it? Um, and quite frankly, the things that were, that were led in these interactions like Jesus is having with Nicodemus, where we're kind of being, come on, come out into the light. Make that final step, or that seri- start making the series of steps. Quite frankly, what we're confronted with, the things to let go, are actually competing salvation strategies that we have in place, that we have to do business with, and have to start letting go. What's yours? What are you clinging tightly to? And it drives a lot of your decision-making. It drives a lot of how you plan your life. It drives a lot of how you handle suffering, how you handle struggle, how you handle relationships. What is the competing salvation strategy, the thing that's sort of an anchor for you? I know what mine was um, and continues really to be, but what I had to do business with in Lent of another year, 2008, I was praying a little prayer like on those cards because I had identified that um, I, had turned, uh, I had turned ministry into sort of that foundational salvation, competing salvation strategy. In the sense, you know, if, I, if I, I was starting this church, I was the pastor of this church as we got it started, and if the church failed, then I was a failure. If the church succeeded, then I was a success. And so I was utilizing starting a church for my salvation strategy, to gain the approval of others and God. And it, and it, was, a, it was a long process of drilling down under the layers of that and re, trying to replace, replace that salvation strategy with the realization that what is, what is the gospel all about? It's that Jesus, when like that bronze snake, when he was lifted up, all of the approval that I'm trying to get out of ministry, all of that came to me freely. I've had it all along. If I just kind of let go of this competing salvation strategy, I can grab hold of, of the thing I was trying to get and working so hard for. And some of you, you know, might find a resonance with that. If, if you have a, you know, if you call yourself a Christian, it's quite possible to be working against grace very actively as you think of it as circling around, running around the well of living water, but never knowing what it's like to stop and take a drink. Or you might have all kinds of other things, whether it's money, whether it's control, whether it's a concept of freedom, 
or whether there's just tons of fear going on and you just can't let go for one reason or another. Consider what it's like. Jesus wants to entice you with the dramatic picture of the rescue, of the salvation. He wants to put words to it, pictures to it. He wants you to see the severity of your problem and the wonder of being cured and having rescue. And you have to do business with your competing salvation strategy usually to get there. And let go and be rescued. You know, I, I looked back this week at a YouTube video and um, I love the picture it portrays. There's this video of this rescue of a dog. And the dog has slipped into the, I don't know where it is, but he's slipped into the ice or into the water from the ice. It's cold, 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 cold. It's like somewhere up in North Canada or something. And this dog slips in and there's this rescue boat with three rescuers in it. And they're going to rescue this dog. And one of the rescuers gets off on the ice and goes over to the edge where the dog is trying to paw up and the dog just can't get out of this deadly freezing water. The dog is going to die and is wanting to get up and out and this rescuer bends down, reaches around the dog and is going to pull the dog up but now the dog's face is right here by his face and the dog's jaw opens and gashes his face with a massive, massive bite as the rescuer is about to save his life. And of course the rescuer lets go. Now, hopefully some of you take that a few steps and say, isn't that a picture of us sometimes with God? (laughs) The very rescue we need, and Nicodemus maybe is a little picture of that, the very rescue he needs, he still kind of wants to stay in the dark and not actually get it. But what I love about that video is that the next thing that happens is that one of the other rescuers jumps out of the boat into the deadly ice water and comes up kind of behind the dog, and before the dog, the dog's trying to bite him too, But before he can get him, the guy just heaves under him and pushes him up into the boat so that he can live. And the other guy, is you hear his voice coming through their their little communication uh, uh, walkie-talkies or whatever. I'm going to need stitches for this one, and he's holding ice on his forehead. I mean, I just think it's a picture not only of our resistance, of the incredible thing that is before you that you can wake up new to every day, but also some of you are going to need... Because you're so resistant. Some of you are going to need God, and, he'll, and he does this. This is how he saves. He jumps back in. And you're going to need him against your will to shove you up into the lifeboat. Let's pray. Our gracious God, would you do what we often can't do? There's a whole aspect of this passage, Nicodemus and us, we need to let go of things. And we need tons of help doing that. We need our minds expanded. We need in some ways to taste the amazing thing that you offer us that maybe just seems like a cognitive concept or maybe just seems so far and distant and we can only interpret it in religious, legalistic, duty terms and we need some kind of a grace breakthrough where we see how lavish you are with your embrace and with the treasure that you give and bring into our lives. Essentially, a message like this and a story like this just leaves us, just like the story did, we still have, we have more questions than we have answers. More than anything, we have a request that you would arrive. You would arrive and rescue us in exactly the way we need rescuing. And that others may see it and be encouraged and learn about you through what you're doing in this place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.